0: Welcome to the Church at Rocky Peak's downloadable messages and podcast. This week, our lead pastor, Mike Yearly continues his series entitled, The Message and the Movement, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And today's message is number 11 in the series, and it's entitled, Jesus and the Word.
1: Well, good morning. Wow, that was slow. Let's try it again. Good morning. Oh, no, way to go. All right. Have a good week. Have a good week. Uh, You got my letter, did you get my letter, my uh, six-page letter, and uh, we have a new worship pastor, so I'm really excited about that, and... uh just looking for. I know you're going to love J.D., just an amazing guy, and a long and windy road that's, that's led us to this point, and uh, you know, these letters, I, I know they're long sometimes, but I, I, always, I always debate with myself, you know, do I just do a short letter and say, here's the name, here's the deal, you know, whatever, we're done, or do I share the whole long and windy journey, and I, I just always you know, end up going, you know what, I just want to bring you along in the journey and just see what God did behind the scenes, and uh, so I hope you enjoyed reading that. If you uh, haven't set aside a couple days yet, I uh, hope you get to it. And uh but uh just really excited about, about them coming. So just be praying now with us that they'll you know get out here as soon as possible. And you know how that goes, you gotta sell a house and but you know come out here and find a place to live and all that all the details. So uh just be praying for them along that line. Um today we're gonna be going into a time of teaching in Matthew chapter five. Uh do you have your Bibles? Yes. Word. All right. Good job. And uh Inside of your bulletin, if you're a first-timer here, there's a, a white message note sheet that will help you follow along our time of teaching as we continue this series in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, Sermon on the Mount, it's the most famous sermon ever preached, history of the world, the most influential speech probably ever given in the history of the world, and we're, uh, we're working through it on our weekend teachings, and so we're in, we're in Matthew 5. So let me uh, pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, thank you for this time to be together and gathered around your word. We're just gathered here as your people gathered in your name, Lord, around your word. Lord, we we think of those ancient disciples 2,000 years ago crowded around you on that that side of a mountain there above the Sea of Galilee, just hanging on every word, never heard anything like it. Lord, little did they know that 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 message would change the world. And Lord, we, we're now studying that same thing. We pray that in the same way that they hung on every word, so would we. And we pray you'd come in and meet with us now and change us from the inside out as we listen to your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it was a Tuesday. It was the, uh, the last Tuesday of Jesus' life before he was arrested. If you were there on, on Sunday, it all started. He came into Jerusalem. He came in riding on a donkey. The crowds were going crazy. It was just an amazing scene. Two days from now, on Thursday, he will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know what happens then. He gets arrested and then beat up and crucified, and that weekend rises from the dead. But this is Tuesday. It's earlier in the week. Tensions are rising high in the city of Jerusalem. The people and Jesus' popularity is just kind of going through the roof. The religious leaders are getting very nervous because if things get too popular, a riot breaks out, who knows what the Romans might come in and squelch and take away their power. The people in power in Jerusalem in the nation of Israel from a political sense was a group of the Jews called the Sadducees. Now, if you kind of knew at this, probably never heard of the Sadducees, we always talk about the Pharisees. The Sadducees were a political group. They were sort of the aristocracy of Israel, if you were. They were the blue bloods. They were the people that had inherited power. They worked out this arrangement for the Romans. The Romans said, you run the nation. As long as things don't get too far out of hand, you can have the power. And so they were scared of Jesus because the people were taking to him and it's Tuesday and they're trying to figure out how do we slow down this, this juggernaut, the this spiritual juggernaut? How do, we, how do we take away his popularity in the polls? You know, how do we undercut what's happening here? This thing's getting out of control. And so one day they're meeting in a back room And they're coming up with different thoughts. How could we embarrass him? How could we humiliate him? How could we undercut him? And one person puts forth an idea, another idea. Hey, what if we said this? What if we did this? What if we asked him that? No, that won't work. That's been tried. No, that will never work. And suddenly someone comes up with an idea. I've got it. I've got it. Deuteronomy 25. Now to understand the Sadducees, you have to understand one thing about them. They're a little different from some of the other religious leaders in Israel. The Sadducees only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament, we call it the Torah, the Pentateuch, right, the Law of Moses, they, only, they believed that those five books and those five books only were really from God, divinely inspired by God. They didn't believe the whole Bible is the Word of God. So they were kind of odds with the Pharisees over this. And so as they're back they're in that back room, they've got to pick something in the first five books to ask Jesus about. And they come up with this idea of the leveret marriage. Now, probably not real high on your radar what this was about, so let me just explain it. Deuteronomy twenty twenty five says in Israel there was a law that was designed to protect widows, young widows, designed to protect uh, property rights, keeping it in the family. And so here's the way the law went. They say, let's say that you're a man, you get married, you die, you don't have any kids. What happens to your land, this family property that's been your line for all these hundreds of years? What happens to that? So here to protect that, they said if you have a brother, he's supposed to marry your wife, and hopefully you have children, and that children, that children will technically be belong to the first man, though they're technically his kids, and so the property goes with them, and the family line is kept in, in, intact. And so there was this law, and so, so uh, the, here's the Sadducees. They only believe the first five books of the Bible. Because they only believe the, the first five books of the Bible, there's a lot of things in the Bible they don't believe. Like they don't believe that there's a resurrection. They don't believe in the next life. They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in a lot of miraculous stuff. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in spirits. And so, so here they are. They come up with this plan. Let's do, I got an idea. Okay, and they come up with this plan. And they come to Jesus. Now they understood Jesus, of course, believed the whole Bible. And Jesus taught all the time about the next life. It was one of his favorite topics. In fact, if you were to listen to Jesus, you'd get the impression this life's all about the next life. And so they decided, we got it. We got it. We, we, we've got it. We figured out how to get it. We're going to make him look ridiculous, you know. Some of you are college students, you're in a, you're in a college class, and, and your professor's are trying to make Christians look ridiculous. That's what they're, they're, they're into. How can we undercut his authority? How can we humiliate him? How can we make him look ridiculous so we can cut down this rising popularity in Jerusalem? So they come to Jesus say, Jesus, we've got a question for you. He says, okay, what's your question? He says, well, once upon a time, there was a family. They had seven brothers in this family. And the first brother decides he wants to get married, so he marries this young lady. But shortly after, he dies. It's a tragedy. But his brother, because of Deuteronomy chapter 25 and this levirate marriage, brother steps up to the plate. He marries the, the wife. But in a short amount of time, he dies. No kids. Neither one of them kids. Number three is getting kind of nervous at this point. Brother number three. But he decides he's a good Jewish boy. He needs to follow the law. So he goes ahead and he, he marries the woman. Sure enough, he dies. No kids. Now, at this point, the woman's starting to get rich. Life insurance checks are coming in, you know. She's signing movie deals to the black widow. You know, it's just like... So they go through all seven boys. All seven have this bad luck. And at the end of the time, she dies. Still no kids. It's a sad story, right? And so they said, now, Jesus... Now we know you believe in the resurrection, and of course they think this is ridiculous, this whole thing of resurrection, so they want to humiliate him. So, so Jesus, now you believe in the resurrection, now could you explain to us, and I'm acting all serious about this, as if they really care, could can you explain to us uh, how this works? In, in the next resurrection, she's married to all seven of these guys, which one will she be married to forever? And Jesus, he says, you know what the trouble with you guys is? In fact, there's you got a couple problems. Number one is you have no clue how big God is and what God can do. This whole concept of resurrection that's shaking you up, like, oh, how could that work? He says, now you have no clue. He says, but you know the second problem with you guys? You just don't know your Bibles. Oh, you want to get a religious leader? Tell me I don't know the Bible. The problem with you got you don't know your Bible. That it's just, it's just, you're the spiritual leaders of the nations. Just too bad you don't know your Bibles. If you knew your Bibles, you wouldn't make mistakes like this. Today we come to a whole new section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you've got to know how this works. Uh, Jesus has launched his movement. He calls it the kingdom of God. He's operating in the north of Israel by the Sea of Galilee. One day he decides it's time to take the crowds who are coming to hear him, maybe catch a miracle, hear him teach, take his crowds, take to his followers, disciples, go up the mountainside and to, uh, to get them all out there, spread them out in the place where he can talk to them all and to give, share with them the message of his movement. Now, I've talked to you a couple times about what this area of Galilee looks like. All right, so right north of Galilee. I thought today it'd be fun to take a picture of it. Okay, I should show you a picture. Lynn and I were there a couple times and we took some pictures. And so we're gonna have the lights go down and we'll show you this right here. Let me see it. But it's not as clear as I wish it were, but you can kind of see in the foreground here we're higher up and then it slopes down gradually to the sea. And this is how the terrain looks there. And so you can kind of imagine how you could have people on the hillside, all over the hillside, and maybe Jesus down below, kind of a natural amphitheater doing this teaching. Let's go to the next slide. And, and so here we are. It's, this is the general area. It's the north, kind of the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. See all those hills in the distance? The Sea of Galilee has hills all around it. That's why it has these big storms all the time, as there's the, the cold air and the, the hot air hit, and it creates these violent storms. But that's kind of what it looks like, the hills all around it. Okay, that's good enough. So anyway, so Jesus has a crowd there. He wants to share the message of his movement. And one of the, the first topics he wants to talk to him about is his relationship with the Old Testament. Now, often we're not really up to speed on this, but if you take your Bibles, if you were to look at a table of contents, which you don't have to do, but if you were to do that, you would find there's two parts to your Bible, right? There's an Old Testament and a, a New Testament. Old Testament, what's what happened before Jesus came? The New Testament, what happened after Jesus came? Jesus, what comes after, right? Now, if you were a Jewish uh, boy or girl growing up at that time, your Bible would only be the Old Testament. We often forget this. The Bible that Jesus read was the Old Testament. And there was a rumor going around that Jesus didn't really buy into the Bible. Now, you might say, well, that's really weird. I mean, we all know Jesus bought into the Bible, but but stop and think about it. Back in that day, and it happens today, this is a constant temptation that happens in in God's circles, whatever, is that, that there's a tendency to take God's word and then to mix it in with human, man-made tradition, isn't there? This naturally, and you kind of mix it together, and after a while, they can get so intertwined, you don't know where one stops and the other begins. Some of you have come from churches like that. You grew up in churches like that, very legalistic. Christians should always do this. Christians should never do that. And it was like, there's really no Bible verse that says it. It's just somehow it grew up as a tradition, but now it's gotten so intertwined with the Bible, you don't know what, which end is up, right? And that's kind of the heart of legalism. See, legalism is about when we add or take away to God's word, right? And so this is what had happened. So Jesus comes along. He's just blowing through their traditions. You know, his disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. He's healing people on the Sabbath. He's he's doing all these things. They're just really irritating them, breaking all their traditions. To the common person on the hillside, it looks like he's blowing off the Old Testament, you see, because they're so intertwined. And so the question comes up, the rumors going around, oh, if you're going to follow Jesus and be part of his movement, my kiss Moses goodbye, man, he's doing things differently. This is a new day, new age. And so Jesus wants to nip that in the butt. And what he's going to say today is absolutely not. I did not come to overturn the Old Testament. I did not over come to abolish the Old Testament. In fact, I came to fulfill it. And think of it, in the, in the same way that a novel, if you read a novel, that the final chapters of the novel They fulfill the opening chapters of a novel, don't they? They finish the storyline. They carry out the character sketches. They finish the themes, right? He said that he came to fulfill, that Jesus' life brings the story to fulfillment, you see? He's not against the Old Testament. He loves the Old Testament. He lives the Old Testament. He's knee deep in the Old Testament. He loves the Word. And here's what he's going to say today. Hey, if you're serious about being part of my movement, man, you better love the Word too. Because I'm all over it. I'm all about it. I'm knee deep. I'm drenched. I'm bathed. I'm a man of the word. If you're going to follow me, don't get me wrong here. If you're going to follow me, you need to be a man or a woman in the word. All right? So let's take our Bibles and see what he says. Chapter 5 of Matthew, and we'll start at verse 17. Okay, so he says, in verse 17, so do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the, or, the, or the prophets. Now, this was the way they talked about the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament because there wasn't a New Testament. So you can't call it old when there's something new. So they would just call it the law and the prophets. That's why they called the Old Testament. And so he says, don't think I've come to abolish it. He says, I know that rumor is out there. It's not true. I've not come to abolish. I've come to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, in other words, until I come back and bring in the new heavens and the new earth, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, everything fulfilled. He says, you can, "You can." He says, "I just want to clear up any misunderstandings out there. I am a man of the word, and I don't want you any doubts about this. Where I stand in this, you can take this book to the bank." You can build your life on it. This book is not going to change. It's not going to go out of date. Uh, I'm not going to change my mind. Take it to to the bank. Now, it's true that there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament, of course, that were temporary, right? I and mean, a lot of laws like that. Like for example, there were laws that were given to Israel about how to run their country. They weren't for every country or everyone. They were they were like you know how, like how to run a court or certain court court cases. Uh, there were certain laws that were. Um, they were like object, spiritual object lessons. Like, for example, all the laws about the temple and how the temple was laid out or the sacrifices. Now, Jesus fulfilled those laws, right? They were spiritual object lessons to teach about our relationship with God. When Jesus came, he was the perfect sacrifice, right? And so he fulfilled those laws. There were food laws to teach him about purity and impurity. Jesus came and said, hey, those laws, he said, they're not fulfilled. We're no longer doing clean and unclean food because I'm teaching about purity from the heart. You see, And so there's, Jesus fulfilled the laws in a variety of ways. But the principles or the spiritual truths, they're in force. They're always in force. So for example, let's say that you have, a, and a lot of you have young children. Uh, you have a young child, they're five years old. There's going to be certain rules that you teach them about life. Now, those rules will change when, they, when they're 15, right? It's not the same rules. But the principles behind the rules will remain right? So if you teach them, like, uh, when they're, you know, they're young, they're going to have to be responsible in some area, and here's how you do that, here's your little rules. Well, when they're 15, the the principle of being responsible is still there, but the rules of what you do to get, right, change. And so Jesus says, like, you just got to understand this, that this word, it's going to last forever. The principles taught in this word, I'm basing my life on it. I'm going to fulfill some of them, and sat through being this perfect sacrifice and stuff like that. But just, this word, you can build your life on it. So he says in verse 19. So anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments. And teaches others to do the same. So you're out there saying, oh, you know, this, this commandment about adultery or this commandment about stealing or honoring your parents, oh, it's no longer in force. He says, if that's what you're doing, that kind of thing, he says, um, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven, least in my movement, my kingdom. And whoever practices and teaches them these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, you want to be part of my movement, the kingdom movement? He says, and here's what you do. You need to teach and practice these things. In fact, if you've got a pen, I'd encourage you to underline that word practice. Very important, and we'll come back to that. This is a, th- these commands, so it's not just about learning them, it's about doing them. It's about putting them into practice. Okay, so that's the passage. Now, here's what we wanna do. We wanna step back, and you know how we've done this every week. Every week in the Sermon on the Mount series, we look at a particular statement of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we come back, we say, let's use that as a gateway and through that gate, we'll walk and we'll enter into the life and the teaching of Jesus, right? So today, we're going to be all in the Gospels again. We're going to say, what do we know about the life, from the life and teaching of Jesus about what the role that the Word played in his life and development, how he ran his life? What do we know, what he said about how the, the role that the Word was to play in our life? And then at the end, we'll get real practical and just have a couple questions to do some uh, self-evaluation. Okay, so there in your note sheet, let's jump in. Jesus and the Word. The first principle goes like this, something I've said several times already. Let's just get it down. Jesus was a man of the word. From the get-go, Jesus was knee-deep, bathed, drenched in the word. You cannot understand Jesus if you don't understand this. If you don't understand that Jesus was was a man knee-deep in the word, his life and ministry won't make any sense. For example, we'll see this later, but when his opponents would come up to him and criticize him, he'd go back to the Word. When people would ask him questions, well, Jesus, what about divorce? He'd go back to the Word. He was drenched from the time of his birth. In fact, he, he, uh, Jesus sees his own life as a fulfillment of the Word, right? Fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. For example, if in Matthew, if you were to go back, In the first four chapters in Matthew, we're in Matthew 5, right? If you were to go back just the first four chapters in Matthew, by the time we get to chapter 5, Matthew has already given us seven examples of how Jesus' life fulfilled the ancient prophecies. Where he lived, how he was born, how he grew up, where he moved to, you know, trip to Egypt, the whole thing, All right? And so Jesus clearly, his sense of self-identity was that God had written a script for his life is that script was in the Old Testament in these ancient prophecies and that he was living out that script in ways that he couldn't control. I mean, these aren't things like you could control. You know, this, like, this, his life was an unfolding of a story God had penned hundreds and thousands of years before. Now, to give you a sense of this, it's not so much even just at the beginning of his life. You see it a lot at the end of his life, his death. So we're going to look at a couple passages to give you a feel for this, how this works, all right? So let's take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 26 to the right in your Bibles. You know, while you're turning there, it's just great. You know, often I'll give directions in here. Turn to the right in your Bible. Turn to the left in your Bible. Some of you have been Christians a long time. You're like, why do you do that? We know it's right. We know it's left. You know, God is bringing people here to Rocky Peak who are just and you may be one of them. You're just brand new at this. You don't know anything about Jesus. You don't know anything about the Bible. And we just want to be as helpful as we can as you're checking out Jesus. You know, last night I had a young woman come up to me afterwards and she said, we were talking about John 15 later in the sermon. And she said, you know what, I think I've got the wrong Bible. Could you help me? I don't have a John 15 in my Bible. A young lady and she just gone out and bought her first Bible and she was in 1 John. You know, was five, five, uh, five. she didn't know there was a gospel of John. You know, it's just such a beautiful thing to watch people that just, Really, this is all new to, and so oftentimes here, we'll give directions like that. Turn right, turn left, here's how. And that's why we're trying to be, help these, these, these new seekers, right? Okay, so anyway, so Matthew chapter 26, here's a scene. The scene's a garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is about to be arrested. Earlier in the night, Peter at the Last Supper says, Jesus, look, anyone tries to take you out, they've got to go through me. I'm your man. And we often remember the denials, but we forget he was serious. So when they went out to the garden, he's got, he's got a sword with them, a short little sword with them. And when the crowd comes and the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, he's like Peter against the world. I think he'd seen Braveheart one too many times. You know what I'm saying? He's like, you know, whatever. Freedom! And he just, you know, pulls out the sword, and he just goes for the first guy in front of him. He, he tries to hack him right down the middle of his head. And of course, he misses his head. He cuts He gets the ear. Right? Ear falls off. Very awkward moment. So, Jesus picks up the ear, blows it off, you know, sticks it back on, heals the guy, you know. Then he turns to Peter, and I want you to catch what he says. Chapter 26 of uh, Matthew. He says, uh, verse 52 "Uh, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Hey, Peter, don't you think that I could call my father? And he would put it once, uh, he'd give me 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels. Th- there's 12 disciples here, right? And one guy's the bad guy, Judas. He's like, hey, there's 12 of us and there's a whole bunch of them. He says, uh, if, don't you understand? If I wanted it, I would get a legion for each one of you guys. Right? He says, but then what he says? He says, hey, but how would the scripture be fulfilled? that say it must happen this way. See, he says, my life is the unfolding of the ancient prophecies. He's a man of the word. Now he goes on, verse 55. At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, hey, am I leading a rebellion, a revolt, that you've come out to me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me. He says, but catch this. But this has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. You see? He's a man of the word. He understands his whole view of his life and mission as a fulfillment of this book. Right? That's that's what he's doing. He's fulfilling the Old Testament. Let's look at another one. Go to the right in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Now, this takes place right after the resurrection. It's the first time Jesus has seen his men. They're a little skittish. Is he a ghost? They're not used to the idea of people rising from the dead. It's making them nervous. So they're happy to see him, they're excited, but a little bit like, is he real? Do you see him? Um, He looks real. Maybe we can get him to eat something. Test this out. Verse 42. So they give him a a piece of broiled fish and he takes it and he eats it in their presence. They're like, oh, that's good, he looks real. Verse 44, and then what Jesus says? He says, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything... Must be fulfilled, that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He says, "Don't you get it? Everything that's in the book has to be fulfilled. It's, this this is a law of the universe. The word of God cannot be broken. It has to be fulfilled." He says, "Remember, I told you this before they killed me. You didn't get it then. I want you to get it now." And so in verse. 45, I love this, he says he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. A little sidebar here. You know, if you're going to understand this book and it's going to transform your life, you, you do understand this, right? You can't figure it out on your own. You can read it on your own, you can follow the logic of your own, but you won't be transformed until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the message. Have you ever had this experience of you're reading the Bible, it's a passage, that's familiar to you, you've, read it, you've heard it many times, but all of a sudden someone's teaching it or you're reading it on your own and all of a sudden it just comes alive and God speaks to you through it. What happened? God just opened your mind to the scriptures. And that has to happen for us. And so that's what Jesus did. He opened their minds. And then he said he told them, This is what is written in the Old Testament. This is what is written, the Christ or the Messiah. The Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and then repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. He says this is all in the Old Testament, this whole story. It's all there. And he opened their minds to understand the ancient prophecies. So I want you to catch, Jesus stands knee deep in, in the Old Testament. He is a man of the word. Now, you don't see it not only in the fulfillment of prophecy. You also see it in the way he ran his life. I want you to catch this. For Jesus, this book is the handbook for his life. He stands under the authority of this book, just like you or I do. Jesus doesn't come along and says, well, I know this is what the word says, but, you know, not really. I'm not going to do it. No, it's like he stands under the authority like you or I. He's a man of the word. He says, what does the word say? That's what I'm doing. You see, it is God's word eternal in the heavens. He stands underneath it. You see this several times in examples of his life. For example, one of my favorite stories, Matthew chapter 4. If you've been a Christian a long time, you know the story. It's the the temptation in the wilderness. The problem with being a Christian for a long time is we know the stories, we miss the meaning. So here's, here's the deal. This is a cosmic encounter between Jesus, the Son of God, and Satan, the prince of the power of darkness. Everything in world history rides on this moment. As Christians, we often look back to the cross and we say, that was the key moment. Yes, it was. But if this had not gone well, there never would have been a cross. See, if he lost this battle, there never would have been that battle. This battle was the battle for heaven and earth. Jesus is gonna go one-on-one with Satan, and he's gonna do whatever, Adam and Eve did in the garden, but he's going to do it in the wilderness. And they're going to do it well-fed, and he's going to do it 40 days of fasting. And they're going to go one-on-one, and Satan's going to try to bring him down. And if Satan brings him down, all of cosmic history changes. There will be no salvation. There will be no redemption. The whole plan goes down the tubes. And so they're there. They're one-on-one. He's there for 40 days. Satan's cutting Adam at that 40 days. At the end of the 40 days, one final uh, you know, barrage. Three major attacks, like a fighter plane kind of swooping, swooping down three times. Comes in, three times attacks. Now, for my reading of the story, here's what I think was happening. I think that in the month, the forty days he was out there, I think Jesus was meditating on the book of Deuteronomy. And he said, "Well, why do you think that? Well, Deuteronomy, you know, fifth book of the the Torah, is all about." The instructions of Moses to Israel in the wilderness about how to live their lives before they go in the promised land. It's all about obedience. So here's the nation of Israel been disobedient in the wilderness. The instruction of Deuteronomy is how to be obedient in the promised land while they're still in the wilderness. Here's Jesus now representing the nation of Israel. He's in the wilderness. He's repeating the tests that they failed. And so Satan comes at him and three times has these major assault, these major temptations. The, the, The future of the world, cosmic history is in the balance. And what does Jesus do? Every time, Jesus goes right to his Bible. Every time. With passages that he had memorized. And these were not generic passages like, be good, trust God, don't fear. These were like specific passages and every one was from the book of Deuteronomy. That's why I think he was meditating on it. It It's as fresh in his mind. And so Satan comes in and every time with every temptation, Jesus says, no, I can't do that. Here's the reason why. He goes right to his word. It's like if you're in a battle and it's hand to hand and it's like to the death, you're going to go for your favorite weapon, aren't you? If you're in a serious place and you're a warrior, you're going to go to your favorite weapon. Jesus goes right to his Bible. He says, no, that's not right. Here's what's right. He goes to a specific passage from Deuteronomy that counteracts a particular temptation. So what you see is, you see, Jesus was this man fully in the Word. See, Satan comes, he says, hey, if you're the Son of God, turn the loaves into bread. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, I am the Son of God. Who do you think you are? I know who you are. He didn't do all that. He's a man under the Word. He goes right to the Word. He says, the Word tells me, Satan, man doesn't live by bread alone. That's the lesson. So that's where I'm standing, you see, and on for each one. Now, you see this throughout Jesus' life. So he goes on. He's teaching with, you know, he's, when he's teaching, he's teaching off the word. People ask questions, he's answering from the word. People attack his authority, he's answering from the word. All through his life, he just sees drenched in the word. The example we started with today, I love this example. You know, the Sadducees come, they're trying to trip him up, right? Seven brother case study. They think they've got him. He says, your problem with, you don't know the word. And he says, look, I, I understand you guys only believe the first five books of the Bible, so let me just go there to prove my point. He says, do you remember the passage? And he picks this really obscure passage, obscure in the sense of the way he's going to use it. He says, you remember the time when God showed up and introduced himself to Moses? Remember that day? It was at the burning bush, right? And God shows up and he says, hey, man, this is holy ground. Take your shoes off. Which is, by the way, it's why I wear sandals. I always want to be prepared for this. I'm just like... Okay, man, I'm good. I'm really good. Here we go. Woo, you know, so I'm just ready to go. So he says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And, and, and he says, um, you know, you just kind of, you can just, like Moses like, well, wow, you know, like you look a lot different than I thought, you know. I didn't think you'd look like a bush. <laughs> you just kind of see. And uh, he's like, who are you, you know? And, like we read the whole New Testament. We know all this about God, and we think he knew it. He didn't know it. He's just out there watching his sheep. He knows very little about the God of Israel. And so God introduces himself. He says, well, Moses, let me introduce myself. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. I'm that God. And then Jesus says, now, Sadducees, did you notice something here? Jesus did not say, I was the God of Abraham. I didn't say, I was the God of Isaac, he didn't say, I was the God of Jacob, as if, yeah, Abraham was alive, and I was his God, and then he died, and he's gone, and now Isaac is alive, and and I was his God, and then he died, and he's gone, he didn't say, I was the God, he says, because those guys are still alive, he says, because everyone is alive before God, they might not be here on planet earth, but they are alive before God, there's the next life, you see, he says, the problem with you guys, you just don't know your Bibles, and I'm sitting there, I'm going, are you kidding me? He expected them to figure that out? You see, Jesus is making a major teaching about the resurrection off of a verb tense. You see? You, 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 are you catching this? How seriously he took the word of God? Are you catching this when he says in Matthew chapter 5 not one stroke of the pen is going to change? You know, not one letter. This is all coming true. You can bank your life on this book. It's absolutely reliable. People ask me, why do you believe the Bible is true? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but I'll tell you my number one reason is Jesus told me it's true. He told me it's absolutely reliable, and then he rose from the dead, which gives him high credibility in my book. It's like, you know, it's like, okay, he claims to be God. He rises from the dead. Good resume, right? Right? He says, the Bible, you can trust it, take to the bank, okay, all right, I'm in, you see. Jesus was a man of the word. In fact, later on in his ministry, in John chapter 10, the religious leaders are upset with him, because he keeps going around saying he's God's son, and he's like, hey man, if you're saying you're God's son, that's like you're equal with God. He's like, yeah. Huh. You know, they wanted to stone him. So a couple chapters later, in chapter ten, he says, "Let me explain how this works." He, he quotes this obscure Psalm Psalm eighty two to help him kind of ca- catch the concept. But I want you to see. I put this on your note sheet. And, in John ten, he's having this argument with the disciples. I mean, with his uh, these uh, religious leaders, and he says he quotes Psalm thir- eighty two, and then he sa- he turns to these men and There's on your note sheet. See, at ten thirty five, he says, "And the scriptures." Catch this. What does it say? Cannot be broken. Can we all say that together? The Scriptures cannot be broken. Let's say it again. The Scriptures cannot be broken. Do you get that? This was Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament. They are absolutely reliable. You can build your life. You can trust them because the Scriptures cannot be broken. And if you think we can understand who Jesus was without understanding this about him, this is just so critical, and we'll talk even more about it later on. Okay, number two. There's a second principle, though, and it goes like this. So the first one, Jesus is a man of the word. The second one goes like this. According to Jesus, the word is the key to our growth. Not only was the Scriptures the key to who he was, his identity, his, his handbook on life, it's why he did what he did, but the Scriptures, the word is the key to our growth. And this is what he was saying in Matthew chapter 5. He said, uh, if you want to be great in my kingdom, he says, you need to learn the word, you need to practice the word, you need to, to teach the word. You're going to be part of my movement. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to do a little Bible study on this, okay? Every week we're saying, okay, we're going to want to get to know the heart of Jesus. Let's see, what does Jesus have to say about the word and the role the word plays in your life, the way the word plays in my life in terms of our whole growth process, So we're going to look real quickly at three passages, all right? Three statements of Jesus, all in the Gospel of John. The first one is John chapter 8 and verse 30. So take your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 8 and verse 30. Now, this is a a famous passage. In fact, if you were here for the New Year's message, uh, we actually looked at this passage. We talked about distractions. Let me set it up. Jesus has been teaching. Uh, He's had an altar call. A bunch of people have come forward. Yes, we want to believe in you. Now they're back in the prayer room, all right? So they come back, and and he wants to give them some private instruction. And so in verse 30, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. They believed in him. And so to the Jews, verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, literally, if you hold to my word, that's what it says, literally, if you hold to my word, you you, you continue in my word, you follow my word, then you're really my disciples. Have you ever wondered whether you're really a follower of Jesus? Have you ever wondered about that? Have you ever wondered whether you're in the crowd or you're in the kingdom? We've talked about that a lot in this series. Jesus says there's a way to test yourself. He says the way to figure out whether you're a real disciple is whether you hold on to his word in your life. Do you live his word? Is that the only way? If you claim to be my follower and you don't hold on to my word, you're not really a follower. You're just deceiving yourself. And so he said, uh, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. He says, and then here's what happened. And then you will know the truth. As you hold on to my word, you follow my word, what's going to happen is you're going to know the truth. And guess what? The truth will set you free. We were created for freedom. We're born in bondage. The whole package of following Jesus is about a story how we move from bondage to freedom in our lives. But he says it only happens for one kind of person, the person who holds on to his word. Do you want to be free in your life? Do you want to experience what God has for you in your life? Do you want to be free from the things that tie you down? Jesus says, okay, here's what, the way it is. The key to your freedom is my word. Okay? Second passage. Let's go to the right, John chapter 15. Now, John chapter 15, last night with Jesus with his disciples, he's about to leave planet Earth. He's about to be arrested, crucified, then he'll leave. It's a new phase of their relationship. They're worried about it. He says, don't worry. I've prepared you for this day. I've prepared you for your success. I've prepared you to carry on the work. I've prepared you to be fruitful and experience God's plan for your life. He says, let me explain it like this. And he gives him an analogy. He says, okay, let's, let's like this. He says, let's pretend I'm a vine, like we're at Napa Valley. And like, I'm like, I'm like think of me like a grapevine. And think of you like a branch, Right? And, uh, and your job in life is to be fruitful and to bear fruit and, and to be productive and to carry out God's plan for your life, right? And they go, okay, we got that. He says, so here's the deal. If you want to bear fruit, you want to be productive, you want to grow, you want to change, then what you need to do is you need to stick, make sure you stay connected to me because a vine without the branch, I mean, the, if the branch loses connection with the vine, you're in trouble. And uh, he says, And the other thing is you need to know is that my father is like the gardener. He'll come through your life from time to time and he'll prune you of things that are holding you back. He'll cut out things that are holding you back and as he does that, you'll become even more fruitful, even more productive. Now, the interesting thing is in this little analogy is, well, what, is the, what are the pruning shears that God uses to prune our life? If he wants you to grow in your life, what are the pruning shears? How does he prune you? What, how does that happen? Well, look what Jesus says. Chapter 15, verse 1. He says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. So if you're a spiritual poser, you're not a real follower, that's what happens. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, a true follower, then he prunes it so it will be even more fruitful. Okay. Now, verse 3, he turns to his disciples. He says, now, listen, you guys are all worried about me leaving. I've prepared you. You are already clean. You're already pruned because of the What? Because of the what? The word. You see that? You're you're already clean. You're already pruned because of the word I've spoken to you. In other words, what he's saying is that for three years I've been hanging out with you guys. I've been teaching you my word. And God has been pruning you and changing you and preparing you for this day. See? So not only does the word according to Jesus lead to our freedom, it's the word that that leads to our growth and our productivity in our life. Accomplishing God's plans. Okay, number three. Let's go to... uh, uh, a couple chapters over, chapter 17. Now Jesus is ready to, he's doing his high priestly prayer. He's uh, almost arrested now. And he's praying for his men, praying that God would protect them. He's praying in particular that God would sanctify them. Now, that's a stained glass word, right? Sanctify. Sanctify means to set apart for special purposes. So you, before you came to Jesus, you're part of the world, you're part of the mess. Now Jesus comes into your life, he sanctifies you, he pulls you out of the world, he says you're over here, I've got something special for you, I want to change you, I want to make you like me, I want to transform your life, I want to sanctify you, all right? And so in this passage, chapter 17, verse 6, he says, I have revealed you, Jesus says, praying to Father, I have revealed you, Father, to those you gave me out of the world, they were yours, you gave them to me, and catch this, they have obeyed your What? Your word. They've obeyed your what? You catch this? A true disciple. The mark is they obey your word. I revealed you through your word. They obeyed your word. Verse 8. For I gave them the what? The words. Yeah, I gave them the words that you gave me. Over and over you'll see this. Now here's what you see in the Bible. Is that God creates through his word. You see this in the beginning of creation, right? And God spoke this world into existence. God's word is creative and powerful. It creates. It doesn't just describe, it creates. We're born again in 1 Peter. It says through the living and abiding word of God. We're born again through that word. And so when God wants to do something in a man's life, God wants to do something in a woman's life, he speaks and it brings power and it creates what it describes, see? And so Jesus says, I've given them your words, Now in verse uh, 15, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, because they're not of the world, even as I am not. And here he says, sanctify them, remember, set them apart, change them, transform them by the truth. And then catch this, your word is truth. See, how does God transform, sanctify, change revolutionize a man or a woman's life by his word so you picking up on this so what have we said john 8 it's by the word we're set free john 15 it's by the word that we grow john 17 it's by the word that we're sanctified or transformed you picking up on this this is pretty important stuff isn't it and that's why jesus wants to be really clear in the sermon on the mount i am not nullifying i didn't come to abolish the word i came to fulfill it and if you want to be great in my kingdom guess what You want to be great in my word. So, a couple questions here for us. Let's move on to that next section. Just a couple quick questions, implications. Uh, You know, you can't do a message like this. We'll say, okay, so great. So where are we? Let's do some evaluation. Where are we with the word? Number one. Two questions for you. Number one, first question would be, are you learning the word? In your life, are you actively learning the word? Is this a high priority? Obviously, this was a high priority for Jesus. You know, often when we think of Jesus, I think we have funny ideas about him. And when you say the life of Jesus, I think when it comes to the word, we often assume that since he was somehow, you know, since he was the son of God, that somehow that God just downloaded the Bible into his brain. You know, like I've got, I've got a computer, and in my computer, I have a Bible software program. So i got the whole Bible on my computer. and a lot of you do. And so I just took a couple discs and stuck it in there and downloaded it to my computer, right? So now my, my computer is saved now. It's a Christian computer. <clears throat> it's worked so much better. It doesn't crash near as much now. And I, I think a lot of us look at Jesus like that. Well, of course he knew the word. God downloaded it to it, you know? But you know, there's no evidence of that in the New Testament. In fact, it's the opposite. You know, there's a story about Jesus in the early chapters of Luke, where when he was 12 years old, he went to Jerusalem. He was, uh, he was talking with religious leaders about the word, and he was very profound. But when, at the end of that, he goes back home, and here's what Luke says. that says that Jesus went home, and he continued to grow in wisdom and in stature, physical size, and favor with God and man. In other words, Jesus went home and continued to develop. In other words, Jesus didn't get his wisdom all at one time. Jesus, didn't, Jesus could not have delivered the Sermon on the Mount when he was 12 years old. He didn't know enough yet. You see? He continued to grow in wisdom. What does that mean? It means that he's going wiser later than he was now, right? You see this? That Jesus grew. He grew in wisdom. And I think what happened with Jesus was like any other Jewish kid, Five years old, they start studying the Torah, you know, memorizing the Bible, learning it. Now, I think Jesus was at the head of his class, you know? I think he was, like, he just, he caught on. You see that, he's 12 years old. He was, like, amazing understanding for a 12-year-old. But he still had more to learn, right? He still had to learn. He still had to grow. And Jesus made it a priority to learn the word. So when he's fighting Satan, when his enemies are coming at him with uh, uh, criticisms, When he's teaching, people have a question about what about this? He can go to the Word. Why? Because he studied it. He learned it. Now, so the question is, for our lives, are we learning the Word? couple of sub-questions of that. You don't have to write them down, but just think through In your own life, what does it mean to learn the word? Well, what are the implications? Here, here's what. Number one is that, I think this is one of the primary reasons why we need to make church a priority in our life. This is one of the reasons why, That and a lot of you, I know you're, you're, you go to church every week, it's Sunday morning, you get up, you don't even think about it. It's time for church. You go to church. It's a good thing. It's a habit. <clears throat> but for others of you here, this is not a habit. Maybe you're really new at this. And so you're just checking out Jesus or whatever. And so, and so you just knew, or maybe you've been on the fence, one foot in the world, one foot in, you know, one foot in the crowd, one foot in the kingdom, you're not really sure. And so for you, it's like it comes to the weekend, and you, you actually make a decision every week. Should I go to church today? It's a, it's a decision you make every week. And what is, this is, the implication here is that should not be a decision you have to make. That, that you should make the decision, I need to be in church because I need to be learning the word. You see? And so I've already made that decision. I, I'm going to be in church now, there might be times I can't because of some unusual thing, but I've made that decision. There's a question for you. Are you, are you is, that, is that a priority to be here so you can learn? Um, a second question is, are you in some sort of a small group or other kind of learning situation? It could be Bible study fellowship. It could be a life group. It could be a community Bible uh, program. You know? uh, It could be a class at eternal, or eternity Bible. It could be a million things. But, but are you pursuing the Word? I found that most Christians don't learn the word really well on their own. Some do, but most aren't wired that way. Usually you need to be in a group setting of some sort with some kind of accountability or whatever to learn the word. So is that happening? The third question is, are you reading it on your own? Are you studying it on your own? You know, here at um, at, at Rocky Peak, we have a, a a book, a journal. I know a lot of you know this, but some of you are new. It's called The Life Journal. And we sell them for five bucks. Just real simple. I love these things. They're very simple, kind of laid out in a cool way. But uh, they have a schedule of what you're to read in the Bible. And if you read some Old Testament, some New Testament every day, they take you through the Bible in a year. The passages are often coordinated. There's even a beginner's version if you want to start more slowly so you don't have to read as much. And um, there's a place for prayer requests to write down, and there's Scripture, like tear-out cards in the back. You can memorize Scripture that way. It's a really cool thing. Well, anyway, about a month ago, we're having a welcome dessert at our home. And uh, welcome to church, is designed for new people, but there's always a few uh, old-time people, rocky people, who sneak in, pretend to be new. <laughs> and so then I, I embarrass them all night long, and, uh, no, just kidding, but, well, half kidding. Anyway, um, but, uh, but it's really cool, this one time, it was just a month or so ago, it was in February, and we had one of these welcome shirts. And it was really cool because we had three people there. And just kind of off the cuff, I was really wondering to talking about this, they wanted to share with everyone the difference that these life journals have made in their life. One guy, is probably in his mid-40s, I guess, he said, you know, um, you know, I've never read through the Bible myself. And I've never read through the whole Bible. And I'm just finishing up. Next week, I'm finishing up. I've read through the whole Bible now using that life journal. He says, you know, it's amazing. When I come to church now, I understand so much more. It's like, Yes. 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 That's how it works, right? The lady next to him said, You know, this is actually my second time through the Bible and the Life Journal. And she said, You know, I found that the first time through, there's a lot of stuff I didn't understand, but the second time through, it's all starting to fit together. Like, yes. Yeah, isn't that how, you, that's how it works when you learn something, right? Everyone, you know, do you have geometry first time through? It's like, Oh, I get that. <laughs> like, no. Someone going, We never got that, you know? Into the class, we never got that, right? But that's what happens when you learn something that's new. You don't get it all at once, right? You start learning it, and then it starts coming together at a certain point. Beautiful thing. You know, we're always looking for creative ways. You know, I'm, you know to, to get, get you in the word, and uh, this last uh, week I had a, a great lunch with a couple guys here at the church, uh, Jeff James and Fred Martin Jr., and a lot of you know that those two uh, characters. And uh, anyway, I love these guys, and we were just talking about this, and they were sharing with a really cool thing that they do called Fire Pit Five, and it was just so fun and so intriguing. I said, you know what? Hey, I'm preaching on the Word this week. Hey, would you come to every service? Let me interview you. Just kind of share what you wacky guys do. And they said, yeah, we'd love to do that. So here they come. So let's so welcome them up. Hmm. Okay, so, uh, so here we come, and uh, I'm gonna um, first of all, the first thing I, I love this whole concept of Fire Pit Five. I just love the idea. So, why don't you guys, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about Fire Pit Five, how it started, what do you do?
2: Well, uh, it, the name comes from five guys sitting around a fire pit and talking about life, um, and one one guy, John, why Not, invited five of us, four of us over to sit around his fire pit late at night and uh, just share life with each other. Um, really cool way. Uh, we put the wife and the kids to bed, <laughs> and we go out, and we can stay out as late as we want. And it's just a great chance to make that uh, connection between men, it really uh, bring a strong bond between each other. So, uh,
1: so what time do you meet? How often do you meet?
2: We'll do it at 9 o'clock uh, when we're on. We're meeting uh, every other Wednesday. Um, and uh, it's just a really cool way, 9 o'clock at night, there's no chance we can be interrupted, usually. <laughs> that's,
1: that's great. And you go on for a while, right? Yeah, You're...
2: we can go till 1 in the morning, and the exciting part about that is that often is the time when, uh, when some of the deepest conversations can come out.
1: Yeah, great. Now, we were talking uh, last week when we met, and you were telling me about this whole top 10 approach to the Bible, kind of a top 10 uh, listing thing you came up with. I was pretty intrigued by that. Maybe you could share a little bit about that.
0: We've been meeting for about four or five years. And so at one point, we said, you know, we really want to figure out a new fun way to really get into the entire Bible. So we said, you know, why don't we pick a topic in the Bible? And since we were around a fire pit, we said, let's, let's look into all the fires. Let's find the top 10 fires in the Bible. So we all went home. We spent the next week, and we all looked up different fires in the Bible. And so as we did this and we came back together, we started discussing these fires. And we noticed that there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were in the fire. Um, there was Elijah. There was the burning bush, as you mentioned earlier. And there's all these different fires had different, as we talked about, we realized that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it really showed God's protection in the fire. Mm-hmm. And with Elijah, it showed God's power. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the burning bush, there was God's presence. And even mm-hmm. next week, um, probably in Matthew 5, 22, you're going to talk about there's a punishment, the mm-hmm. fires of hell. Yeah. And so we learned about all these different things in the fire. And like just recently, well, another one we did was murder. And so I said, well, is Cain and Abel the worst murder? Or was it the fact that Moses killed an Egyptian? Mm-hmm. And then as my number one was, no, you know, it absolutely has to be when David killed Uriah. He had, he had the troops pulled back. That was a murder. To me, that was a man after God's own heart killing a very, very, um, a man who just was faithful.
1: And a noble guy. A,
0: a noble guy, and he killed him. Yeah. And to me, that is the absolute worst murder.
2: That's not the worst murder.
0: No, that is the worst murder.
2: <laughs> no, it's, it's not. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, Jesus was... Murdered on the cross.
0: That was a crucifixion. That wasn't a murder.
2: Well, but it, it was a wrongful crucifixion, so I could. Well, I mean, to Mary Magdalene, it was a murder. Well,
0: that's true. But it wasn't <laughs> one of the murders. So, my number one was David. This is the kind of conversation we got into when we were talking about it. We would argue, we'd argue our points, and we'd really talk about it, and we became passionate. About these
1: topics. Yeah. And the fun thing for me is they were sharing this. You could see how this happened. Now it starts kind of simple, right? Like top 10 fires. Like sounds kind of trivial or whatever. But what happens is you get into it, you start arguing for why your number one is number one. And it becomes very spiritual all of a sudden. It's like my number one fire would be, uh, they, they, they said, might be like uh, the, the flaming swords in the, tr- the, the circle of the tree of life you know, that protected. And hey, that's important because that's when we lost our relationship with God. And, the, and someone else was like, no, no, it's, it's the fire when God came down on Mount Sinai because God was revealing himself in his law and we wouldn't even know how to live. And so you see what I'm saying? These become almost like spiritual object lessons where now you're really thinking through the facts of the Bible to the meaning of the Bible and the implication and implications for our life. And so it's just a really fun, fun thing. And so uh so these guys actually met this week with me. They wanted to share this with me. They didn't know the topic was on this weekend. Just so, and what was, share a little about your vision for your, your top ten thing.
2: Well, uh, because it works so well for us, um, you know, the idea that we have um, our life groups and, and that sometimes the conversation just does, can't get going. But when we're, we're, this book is so full of uh, just richness and, and God communicating with us that uh, we just thought it would be great if uh, our church body... Um, could take that on and uh, use that that sort of gimmick uh, to get you into the Bible and. That's kind of our vision for it.
1: Yeah, so it's cool. We just talked about, like, say that, and some of you might want to do this. Maybe in your life group, just say this next quarter as you go into it, hey, let's just pick one night, and let's just make it, like, the top 10 night. Let's just try this thing out, you know? And uh, we'll pick the top 10 rocks in the Bible, or the top 10, whatever the thing is. They're actually putting together their top 10 of ideas of what they've done that have gone well, and uh, we'll have them available for you. But this is a fun and creative way to get into the Word in a new way. And uh, and I loved it, and I I wanted to share not only that, because I just love this idea. Have five guys now at 6 getting together 9 o'clock at night every other week just to share their lives, uh, grow together. Just a beautiful picture of a kind of band of brothers. And uh, so for both reasons, I want to get them up here. Thanks so much for sharing. Thanks, guys. We have uh, one, more, uh, one more point. We'll just go real quickly over. So the first question is, are you learning the word? You know, Jesus, it was a priority. Is it a priority for you? Are you figuring out a way to get that word into your life? But then the second question goes like this. Is it, are you putting it into practice? And... Uh, you know, Jesus was really big on this. In fact, I, I under, had you underline it. We went through Matthew 5. Remember that? He said, on that he said, whoever you find to be great in my kingdom, you have to put it into practice. It Put it into practice. For Jesus, the Bible was not a suggestion. For Jesus, the Bible was not a consultant. For Jesus, the Bible was an authority. Okay? Now, you know what authority is. Authority is like you're pulled over by the cop. He says, let me see your driver's license. You don't say, nice idea. That's great. Great. Got any other ideas? It's like, he's an authority. You say, yes, sir. I forgot it. It's at the house. Can I go back? Right? <laughs> you say, yes, sir. And here it is. When my tax accountant calls me and says, here's how much you pay, I say, yes, ma'am. She's my authority. Right? When you hire a consultant, they come into your company and they, you say, what do you think we should do? Here's some ideas. They give you some ideas and you say, thank you very much. I'll consider them. And see the difference? You understand that. The difference between an authority and a consultant. And the question is, in your life, here's my question for you, is the Bible, is it an authority or is it something that you consult? And here's what I've experienced. A lot of people who claim to be Christ's followers, go to the Bible as a consultant, as they would a consultant. And so when they have a decision to make, they go to the Bible and they say, what does God's word say about this? And they read it and they say, that's really interesting. I'm going to take that into consideration. I'm going to think about that. I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to talk to my friends about that. That's really interesting. I would have thought I should do this. This says I should do this. I'm going to consider that. But I want you to catch, Jesus says that we don't get to freedom by considering the word. He said, if you hold on to my word, you abide in my word, you continue in my word, you remain in my word, you practice my word, then the truth will set you free, right? So here's the challenge for us as a church, for us as followers of Jesus, if we're serious about moving from the crowd into the kingdom and becoming followers, if we're serious about being a God place where God shows up and we experience his transforming power and freedom as a church here at Rocky Peak, then here's the calling, that we follow the man who leads our movement and he was knee-deep, drenched in the word. You can't even understand them apart. And he says, if you want to be part of my kingdom, if you want to follow me, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you need to learn it, you need to practice it, you need to teach it to one another. Share what you're learning, you see? We want to be a church like that, amen? Amen, let's pray. Lord, we just pray you'd be with us. We thank you for your word, how powerful it is, Lord. We thank you for the way you've spoken to us today, how you've realigned us and helped us to see your relationship with the word. We pray now, Lord, that you would cause us to grow, that you would come and open our eyes to see things in your word we haven't seen before. We pray you'd teach us to run in the path of your commands for you have set our hearts free. We pray this in your name, amen. There's a couple uh, passages in Psalm 119 all about God's Word and a couple passages in your note sheet. You can re- review them later that I skipped over as we went through the message. What, the first one, 105, says that your Word is a lamp, and, is a light unto my path and it's a light, a uh, lamp unto our feet. Uh, in other words, God's Word is, shows the path in life. Here's you're supposed to walk. Uh, Psalm 119.32 says, the psalmist says, I run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. Two great statements. A light doesn't do much good if God gives us a flashlight and we don't turn it on, right? It can't be a lamp and light into my, our feet if we don't have it turned on. I love that second one, though, where he says that I run in the, in the path of your commands. You know, there was a time in my life I did not run in the path of God's commands. I I maybe walked. I maybe sometimes didn't take the trip at all. Sometimes I, I might have like, stumbled. You know, I didn't want to walk in the path of God's commands because I saw God's commands as restrictive. And what I've learned in my life is his commands are never restrictive. They're always protective. They're like the guardrails that say this is the path to life. This is the path to freedom. The more we see that, the more we pick up speed in our jog with Jesus, and we begin to run. And I I think he would love that verse. He never quoted it in the New Testament that we know. But I'm sure he loved that verse. That I run in the path of your commands. Why? Because, man, you have set my heart so free. It is so obvious that this is the only way to live. May we run in the path of his commands this week. And may his word be a light unto your path and a lamp unto your feet as you seek him together. God bless. We'll see you next weekend.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at RockyPeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.